over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, this little letter, this little epistle of John, there are lots of debates about what it's about, and I want to show you why I think fellowship is the primary subject of this letter that John wrote. It is a difficult letter to date. It's a difficult letter to know some of the background, but it's nevertheless the Word of God. The primary theme, according to Bowen Wilkinson, is the assurance of the indwelling God through their abiding relationship with Him. That This fellowship comes through this. And I like the way they sewed that together. That you and I have this fellowship, we have this assurance with Him as we abide, as we stay with Him. They offer a number of purposes. I've amended this just a little bit because some of the words they used in the actual text were not the words in the NASB, so I just changed a few words. But these are at least five purposes that John gives us in this little letter. To promote fellowship, to produce joy, to protect from sin, to prevent deception or heresy, to provide confidence. And each of those would be a great devotion in and of themselves, would they not? And I suspect one of those probably pops up in your heart and mind. That's the one I wish I had more of. I I struggle with joy. Those of you who know me, I know joy is a choice. I know joy has to be uh, no matter what the circumstances are, but to choose joy is tough for me. And so to remind myself from the Word that this is a choice, I get to respond to these things joyfully. But this is an overview again of what they're uh, viewing. Um, It was also written to deal with false teaching. Now some of you have heard the word Gnostics or Gnosticism, and I don't want to go down these lanes too long because they're they're big subjects. But whenever you read a book of the Bible, uh, I like this word context, and you have to know the context of the passage, what's going on in the setting. And to understand the context of 1 John is helpful to a degree, but we don't have to know all about Gnosticism to still read and understand this little epistle from John. So what's going on with this Gnostic teaching, let me just say it very simply, it was false teaching and the ones that are promoting it are summarily called antichrists. And we'll talk a little bit more about it as we go through the passage. We typically think of one antichrist. John's going to use the word in a plural fashion. And he actually gives us some very interesting insight, but they're basically false teachers. And so these false teachers are called antichrists, and these are in the backdrop of why he's writing this letter. We uh, talk about Dr. Constable's notes. Some of you like study Bibles. People come to me all the time and say, I want to get a new Bible. I'm thinking about a study Bible. What study Bible should I buy? Every study Bible has strengths and weaknesses. And I say, before you go buy a study Bible, just download some of Dr. Constable's notes on your computer or tablet. PDFs, they're all free. And he does a yeoman's job 
of going through the purpose, the argument, the theme, the dates, and so forth. So it's like a study Bible on super steroids. And I would encourage you to take a look at it, especially if you're a person that spends time in the Word on a regular basis. He writes, if I were to boil down the message of this epistle in one sentence, it would be this. Fellowship with God is the essence of eternal life. I really like that sentence. At first I thought, that's kind of meh when I read it. But the more I read what he's saying there is that to have this relationship with Christ, we talk about relationship with God, we can't see him, we can't touch him, we can't talk to him like a human being. How do I relate to him? This word fellowship's a bit ambiguous, it's hard to nail down. And so he says, again, fellowship with God is the essence of eternal life. In other words, if I understand this relationship called fellowship, that's the essence of understanding my salvation. I really like what he did there. He continues, uh, Paul wrote Philippians 3, that his relationship with God was the most important thing in life by far. John wrote in this epistle to enable believers to appreciate this fellowship with God and to deepen that fellowship. Now, I'm going to show you a chiasm or a chiasm or a chiastic form, however you want to pronounce it. And I don't expect you to uh, take all this in. And I, I, this is sort of a sidebar, sidebar. Um, again, if you've been around, you know I refer to these from time to time. The Greek letter chi, C-H, looks like a stylistic X. So when you hear the term chiastic or chiasm, they're talking about uh, the way language is used or written or organized. And simply, uh, when you say, you, you heard the expression, X marks the spot. So think of a chiasm as X marks the spot. The middle of the chiastic device is generally, this is not you know, dogmatic, but it's generally the point that the a structure of the author, what he's trying to do. Uh, in my study of scripture and chiasms, I have been very um, curious as to if they knew they were doing this or the inspiration of the Spirit had them do it. And I don't have the answer to that, but the Psalms, of course, are beautiful chiastic devices. But just, just look at some of these things to get a picture of what this structural analysis. What, okay, Michael, why, why, show, why show me this? Well, because it gives you a picture in a structural form of what the author's doing. So you have A, A prime. So A, we have the prologue, eternal life, A prime, the epilogue. That's simple. B and B prime, we have these witnesses, and there are three mentioned each time. C, the love of God and the believer. C prime, the love of God and the believer. E, the believer's confidence. E, the believer's confidence. And in the middle, F, love is sort of a demonstration or approving of abiding. And abiding is a big word that John likes to use in uh, both the gospel and here in 1 John. So again, don't, don't take this to the dogmatic end of the world. That, i got to see that every time I read a book of the Bible. It just helps. And for those of us that might be uh, visual learners, it's a way to see literature and how the points are made. And when you read the Psalms, look for these devices. Because it will, it will make the psalm come alive for you as you study and look for these kinds of things. That's all for free. Let's look at some key terms. And again, as you open any book of the Bible and read it, you're looking for repetitions. You're looking for maybe unique words. Words that are big. Words that are complicated. Words that aren't used a lot. So here are some that are more in the frequency category. Love is used 20 times. Sin, 26. Abide, 22 if, this little conditional clause, 20 times. That was a rabbit hole for me uh, Friday and Saturday. I was looking at all those if clauses and uh, 
you nerds, you would love this study. I'm just telling you, it's a fascinating what he says with these if clauses. Uh, commandment 14 times, children 14 times, writing or written 13 times, and then practices. Sometimes practice is singular, sometimes it's plural. We have, we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, and we're going to talk about this word. Beloved is about six times, and then the word fellowship four times. So again, we're just stepping back on this little letter. We're looking at the structure how it was organized, and then some of the frequency of these terms to get a picture of what John is writing in this book. Let me read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. So that, and that's generally an explanation or a purpose kind of idea, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So I showed you that list of frequencies, I showed you that little structure, and you can see in four verses a lot of what he's saying in those four verses are easier to see, would be my argument. These are great verses, extraordinary passage. It parallels with John chapter 1 and with Genesis chapter 1. And so Bible readers will see that if they are careful as you go through the Scripture again and again. Um, What the Apostle is saying, we've heard about him, we were eyewitnesses, uh, we touched him. I think one of the English translations says, with our hands we handled him. We touched him, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we were with him, uh, and we give him to you. This phrase, word of life, is a, a bit of a toss up. People have different opinions. I think it means Christ. What we looked at, what we touched with our hands concerning Christ, the word of life, and the life was manifest to us. So we saw him. It was demonstrable. Um, This reference then is what we saw, what we experienced, what we touched, what we know, what we heard, we're giving it to you. So the prologue of his little letter is a handoff. Now what struck me many years ago when I read this, and maybe you caught it when I read the verse, was the progression of how this fellowship works. In verse 3 he says that you may have fellowship with us. He says that before he talks about fellowship with Christ. And that always made me wonder, why didn't he say the objective is so you'll have fellowship with Christ? He says no, it's a fellowship with us and then also with Christ. And as you study 1 John and you understand what he's doing here, uh, some of you are old enough to remember the phrase apostolic teaching. You might have been in a church that talked about the apostolic teaching. There was a book by J.B. Lightfoot. It was written probably in the 1800s that I have somewhere in a box. And it was called The Apostolic Teachings of the Cross, I believe. And I remember even as a, as a college kid reading that book going, what an odd title, The Apostolic Teachings of. And what John is saying here and why people have locked onto that historically was because the apostles were the chosen men that Jesus Christ manifested himself to, revealed himself to, and told them to write these things through his inspiration of the uh, Holy Spirit's inspiration. 
In other words, your New Testament, the body of literature, the Gospels through the book of Revelation, this corpus of material God gave these men to put down in a transmissible form. You could hear it, you could read about the stories that they were eyewitnesses, that they handled, they touched, they experienced, they saw all those things, and we're giving it to you. Why is John going to this length? I, I believe the argument is very simple. If you don't believe the apostles were God's chosen people to give you the word, then we're off on a, on a bad start. You're not going to understand this Christ if you don't understand how he works through the lives of his chosen people. So it's an interesting passage, uh, maybe not to you, but it was very intriguing to me in college and seminary about why didn't he say, just cut to the chase and say, have fellowship with God? And I would summarize this way because the Bible is important. The, Bible, the Word of God is important. You can't just believe what you want about God. How much language do we hear today? I believe in God. Well, if you don't know that Jesus Christ of the New Testament, you're not believing in God. Which is the backdrop of Gnosticism and incipient Gnosticism and these false teachers and what we might call antichrists. So it's a pretty heavy passage theologically for being such an easy set of verses to read. Contrasted, say, to some of Pauline's writing, right? Well, the other thing I want to point out before we go on is um, the Trinitarian ending of it, so to speak. He says um, that indeed with us, fellowship is with the Father and His Son, His Son Jesus Christ. So we have the Spirit, we have the Son, we have the Father here. The Trinitarian doctrine is this fellowship. I, I, years ago, I preached a message of on the Holy Spirit, and I came to the conclusion that you can't be saved apart from a Trinitarian Godhead. Because each part of the person of God does something, quote, be careful here, differently in the believer's life to bring him or her to salvation. It's the work of the Spirit, it's the work of Christ on the cross, it's the Father who affects these things. It's a fascinating, uh, in a day when they're throwing Trinitarian theology out the window for whatever reason. I had a Bible college professor many years ago, um, and, and they were going off on the church being um, too New Testament. And, this, and they said, um, the church has become too Pauline. I don't want to stand up and shock, I didn't, but I want to stand up and go, no, that's wrong. You can't be too New Testament. That's foolish. This is the Word of God. He gave it to these people to write it without error. And we've got it in so many English versions, we have no excuse for not knowing it, right? Well, let's continue. In chapter 2, verse 12, we read, I'm writing to you, little children, the endearing part of John, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. And there are lots of compared verses we could compare this to, but one that I looked at this week that I always, it strikes me. Isaiah 43 says essentially the same thing. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Um, Again, a strange nuance of what the Bible says, the reason God forgives us is not for us. Let's put it simply, it's for His reputation. And think about your children when they misbehave or get in trouble at school, or maybe they have a problem with the law, and you want to help your child, your son, your daughter, your adult son, your daughter, you want to help them get back on track and get, you know, get cleaned up and straight with life and so forth. Well, you're doing it to help them, surely, but you're doing it because they're yours. They're your son, they're your daughter whom you care about, and you, let, and you do anything for them. And in a strange sense, humanly speaking, it reflects on 
our name, right? The couple's name, the parent's name. So think about that, not a perfect illustration, but think about that in light of He forgives your sins for His namesake. Or to put it simply, for His reputation is a good way of thinking about that. Now, we're adults in this room, and most of you are coming here because you have certain expectations of a church that teaches the Bible. And I I, uh, often say I'm one of you. I'm not any better than you. I'm probably a better sinner than you are. If you know the Bible really well, you can, you know, use the loophole, so to speak, right? Don't look at me like that. You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> um, but do you pause and realize that your, your daily sins, yours and mine, He forgives for His namesake. You know, most of us don't sin in our behavior as much as maybe we did in our early Christian life. We sin between the temples and underneath the chest, Right? We sin in our thoughts, in our, in our hearts, our affections. And John will talk about that in a moment as well. But I find it encouraging. I'm telling you little children this because He loves you and He forgives you your sins for His namesake. Again, this, I hope to expand your theology a little bit about why God forgives us. I'm not sure how often you think about your sin. I know when you go to a church and the preacher going to talk about sin. It's so cliche. Preachers talk about sin. Well, Scripture talks about sin. It struck me this week, we were dealing with all this woke culture stuff, and I thought, that's an interesting cultural trend. We're woke, and we don't realize what we've done wrong, or have we really done it wrong, or am I being blamed for something I didn't do, but I better be woke about it, and on and on it goes, right? Um, Are we woke about our sins? Are you and I transparently acknowledging that we sin all the time. Christians don't like to talk about this stuff. But you have a God who loves you. He died in your place on your behalf instead of you to take care of those sins. And He welcomes you into a what John's going to call a fellowship relationship. The essence of your salvation is to have this relationship. And the way He does that is by forgiving your sins Completely when you trusted Christ and ongoingly helping you. One of the problems with sin and shame and the way the culture and the way we're raised, all that plays into the way we view guilt and shame and sin, is to step back on it and understand if I love God, I want to obey Him. That's pretty much what John is saying in a, in a, a way. If you love Him, you want to obey Him. Because if you love sin, you don't love God. If you love sin, you want to sin. And which one of us wouldn't say under truth serum and bright white lights we love to sin? Scripture acknowledges the pleasure of sin is real. It's momentary. It's unsatisfactory, but it's real. But to retrain ourselves through God's Word, God's Spirit, to say, I'm going to submit to this, and I'm going to say yes to obedience and no to sin over time. I don't think we'll ever have complete victory over our sins. I think that's an illusion. Or, and, and if you do, then you have the sin of pride, so I'll pray for you. Um, I just don't think you're ever going to get there till you're dead. But I do think your sensitivity to sin is what tells you, I know I'm doing this, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm feeling this way and I shouldn't be feeling this way. And this is where the letter is so helpful. But he doesn't stop there with his reputation. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. I often remind myself that sin never satisfies. John says it. It passes away. It's not going to last. The one thing that's going to last is what Christ has done. The Word of God lives forever. Now think about this again in this context. There are antichrists, there's false teachers that are feeding them bad information that are part of these churches, perhaps in Ephesus most likely. And so they're starting to define themselves based on that. You and I are defining ourselves based on what the culture says about us. You're doing it and you don't even know you're doing it. That's the frog in the kettle. So this, the, the woke stuff is one simple illustration. As you're getting affected and thinking about, am I, what, do I need to be woke and what have I done wrong? You're now drinking the world's philosophy. And sometimes the world's philosophy isn't wrong. Don't hear me say categorically. But if it's apart from the word, it is wrong. If the culture was saying, you know, we shouldn't murder children, Morally, we'd say, yeah, that's right, we shouldn't murder children, and we'd be for that. But when the culture says other things are right, we're denying Christ, we're denying His Word, and we're trying to be loving and tolerant because those words have been hijacked. And it's hard to stand firm as a Christian and say, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. You've heard my illustration of money, sex, and power. Three umbrellas. I think they cover all of our sins. Some of us are, are tempted and beleaguered by money, some by sex, and some by power. And sometimes, unfortunately, there's overlap with those umbrellas. You think of the thing that pulls your heart, the thing that pulls your spiritual loins away from God and His Word, it's probably money, sex, or power. One of those three. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. I deserve this. I can have this. This is the way I'm made. I can't deny my own impulses. Scripture says something quite different. The world's passing away. It's temporary. This life at best is a clean bus station. It's temporary. And the problem is we try to make earth heaven. This antichrist thing he's going to get into in this passage is simply, summarily he's going to say, if you deny the person work of Jesus, you're an antichrist. That changes the picture of this antichrist figure we think about when we hear the word in the book of Revelation. That he is one who's going to come and he's going to have world dominance and world power. And John is glomming this together saying those who teach against Christ, those who are false teachers, those who don't embrace the word, those are the ones you need to be aware of. Well the context also helps, verse 19, they went out from us They were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they they all are not of us. And boy, does that help if I understand the context. He's talking about these false teachers and antichrists. This is not a question of if a person saved or not saved, and they left. This is a person who's a false teacher. They wouldn't have been, if they were part of us, they'd have stayed here and we'd have had fellowship together. But because of lust of flesh, lust of the eye, because of the sinful life that pulls them away, because they're pushing and teaching that agenda, they never really got it, so to speak. They're infiltrating, they're teaching the wrong thing. Lots of ways to spot false teaching, but if they're not 
super clear on the person and work of Jesus Christ and super clear on what the gospel is, you might take a step back. Maybe they're confused or uneducated, but if they're not really clear on the main things, then I would certainly have a yellow, if not a red flag. He continues in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, to transition to the promise of eternal life. So it hinges well. They went out. They weren't really teaching the right thing. They were wrong. They were false teachers. But continuing his argument, verse 25, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. God's made you a promise that doesn't matter what the culture says. God's made you a promise that doesn't matter what false teaching presses in on us. Um, some of us, again, are old enough to have the coffee table books, the promises of God, anybody? Or your grandma had those little books around the house, the promises of God. Did you ever look at it, ever? I never did. I saw those books all over the place. It's kind of like, you know, the dust collectors. I don't know what they are. What are the promises of God? Well, there are a lot of them, but this one here is pretty important. Eternal life. If you trusted Christ and Christ alone, they lived that he died, that he was buried to confirm his death. And three days later he comes back from the dead to prove his power over death. That he appeared to the apostles, his friends, several hundred, thousands of people, and he was ascended into heaven. And that's the core of the gospel message. He lived, he died, he was buried, came back from the dead. Any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation are given a gift called eternal life. That's what John's talking about. And the first benefit is the forgiveness of sins. It's the greatest transaction in all of history. And people still trip over it. They still have problems with it. They still don't like it. This is the promise which God made. You can stake your life on this, men and women. You can stake your soul on it. You can stake your eternality on it. He then moves into this section on love. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. In my Bible I've taken a pencil and written the word given. Bestowed is one of those Christian hangover King James words that the Bible just can't get itself to divest of. It's a little cumbersome in English to say that the Father gave on us and grammatically it's a little bit of a football. That's why I pencil it in. But the word bestowed means He gave it to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't gain it. You weren't better than some other sinner. Look how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. When uh, one of my, my longest friends in life, we've been friends for over 50 years. I met him in third grade. And um, I was with him not long ago. We were down in Texas, a group of guys. We call it the Wobbly Old Men Weekend because we're all getting older. And um, we used to hike and backpack and climb and kayak, and now we wobble. So uh, we, we got together and told lies and had a lot of fun. And uh, this guy has two adopted boys. And um, they never could have children, so they adopted two boys. And um, those boys were in their mid-late 20s now. And he was telling me they went to a wedding recently, and um, that his adopted sons, who were developmentally, you know, have still find their way, like a lot of young men today, they don't know what they're going to be when they grow up. They're kind of not very motivated. They like you know, playing video games or whatever. They're not to get out there and do something. And um, so they're with the cousins of this very big family. And uh, George and his wife Cindy told me 
uh, he said, no less than two times the boys came to us and said, thank you for adopting us. We look forward to being with our cousins more than anything on the planet. Now that bowled me over in a number of ways. First of all, that they would acknowledge that to their parents. Secondly, that they like family gatherings. I mean, come on, that's not everybody's cup of tea, right? And they went on and on and on about hanging with their cousins, how much fun it was. And they actually told, around a campfire, they told a lot of their cousins, we're so glad we were adopting this family. Now, when you're the bio family, what do you say to that? We're so glad you're a part of our family. We're thrilled God put you together. For this reason, the world doesn't know him. But you're called a child of God. You, were inherit, you inherit something that you couldn't earn or marry yourself into. Now, I don't know if you like watching all the British royalty stuff. I really don't care about it, but if you're British, you do. Or if you like that kind of stuff, you do. But if you've ever looked at those graphs about what happens when who dies and who becomes king and prince and duchess and duke and whatever other title they have, um, it's pretty interesting. Boring to me, but it's pretty interesting. <laughs> but the lineage is so important from that throne. What a glimpse. Any of you Downton Abbey fans? Upstairs, downstairs, you read the books or watch the movies 100 years ago. When they made those films, they did something very interesting that most viewers missed. They pointed the camera down upstairs, downstairs, and up when they went upstairs. In Downton Abbey, they had a color palette upstairs that was brighter and prettier and fancier, and the palette downstairs was gray-hued, white tones. You were in service. You were born in service. You would never aspire to be upstairs. It's a wonderful picture that you and I were adopted as children of God and will live with a king in a literal kingdom in an eternal universe that will have no end and no enemies and no problems. You're royalty. Peter says you're a royal race, a chosen priesthood, God's own possession, right? He expounds much more on the love in chapter 4. In chapter 3 we have this injunction, since God loved us so lavishly we should live that way. And this is something I want to show you in a snapshot and um, you can look up these verses on your own. I didn't want to it would take a lot of landscape to show you these. But the word practice or practices in your English Bible probably shows up eight times in First John. And I'll read you the, just the, the couple words. In verse 6 of chapter 1 you practice truth. In 2.29 you practice righteousness. 3.4 you practice sin or you practice lawlessness. In chapter 7 you practice righteousness. In chapter 8 you practice sin. Uh, verse 8 in, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, you practice sin. In chapter 3, verse 10, practice righteousness. So three times we have righteousness being practiced. Three times we have sin being practiced. And we have these two outliers of truth and um, right, uh, lawlessness, which are juxtaposed. The truth or what's breaking the law. So i just show you this to give you a little snapshot of what he's doing here. When you read the word practice in your English Bible, again, pencil in the margin, doing because it's the word poiemon in Greek. It means to do or to make. And again, English translations are a funny thing. I don't mean to uh, take the Bible out of your hands. And if you have these softwares, you should always read a couple of different versions. You should 
read, you know, NASB, King James, New King James, you know, uh, whatever you like, and, and just see how they render things differently. We've got more English translations than any language group on the planet, so it's good to read through some different ones from time to time. And you will have a hard time finding the word doing in there. But that's what the word literally means. So think about doing truth, doing righteousness, doing sin, doing lawlessness, doing righteousness, etc. To put it real simply, the children of God do the right thing. You do the right thing. Um, I talk to a lot of people who have chronic pain, uh, chronic diseases, going through chemotherapy. I spend a lot of time talking to people that are hurting and um, I, I wasn't original with me, I'm sure, but somewhere years ago I had this thing in my mind, you just do the next thing. You just do the next thing. Uh, one of our uh, recovery groups things talk, talk about doing the next right thing. That's fine. Uh, I can't remember that many words. Uh, just do the next thing. So if you're going through chemotherapy or a divorce or you're in chronic pain, you can be immobilized, but you just do the next thing. We had a dear friend that lost her husband and had five children, still at home, and did not have good preparation for his uh, departure. And understandably, she was overwhelmed. And I remember talking to her a month or so after he passed away. And she reminds me of this. This is 20 years ago now. She goes, I still remember you telling me to do the next thing. Do a load of laundry, make a meal, clean up a room, run some errands, just do the next thing. How much more important that we do the right thing and obey God. So when that sin and temptation come, that you just take a deep breath and stop for a second and say, God, I need help. Here's a novel idea. Next time you're tempted, say, Lord Jesus, will your Holy Spirit help me get out of this mess? And just see what happens. Just, I'm not saying you try God. I'm saying try to stop yourself from doing the natural thing of falling off the log and sinning again and again and again, and then going to 1 John 1, 9 to get out of jail free. And let's go back to how do I not sin? If I love God, I want to please God as we know this, right? Chapter 4 verses 8 to 10. Let's talk about the love of God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John writes such simple language for those Greek New Testament students. When you start learning Greek, you translate the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John because it's so. And you think, oh, I can tra- I can read Greek, and then you start with Romans, and I can't read Greek, um, but it's easy. He has, his vocabulary is very simple. It's an easy book to to learn how to read. That's a pretty easy English sentence. Don't love God, you'll know God. By this the love of God was manifested or shown in us that He sent His only begotten Son. Does that sound familiar? Where else in the Bible is that? John 3, 16, same author, same writer, same word, monogonese. His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. What a marvelous passage. Uh, the only time this word propitiation is used is here in our New Testament. Um, it's the idea of expiation or appeasing something. It's not unlike atoning and sacrifice for sin, but John uses it in such an unusual way where we're kind of lean over and intrigued by why John chose that word 
Um, and I, I have a suspicion that the backdrop of the context he was dealing with, this was part of what's going on in what they're dealing with, whether it's Gnosticism or whatever, is that this was an important thing for them to be reminded of. Your sin was appeased. It was taken care of. And other language he could have used, but that's the one the Spirit had him use. He continues in the following verses, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now, never miss an opportunity to stop on the most obvious thing you read in the Bible. And God says to love others. Now, it's easy to love people that are easy to love. All those people said, amen. You go to dinner with your friends. You, uh, if you're going to travel and you want to take some people with you, you pick your friends. If uh, you get older and retired and you, you want to do like a big trip, maybe go to Israel or go on a cruise, Let's have another couple. You don't pick people you don't get along with, right? Let's pick the most difficult people we know and let's go spend 12 days on an expensive vacation. That's going to be a lot of fun. It's easy to love those that we love, but that's not what the passage says. It says love one another. So reading this this week, I go, okay, Lord, I don't, I don't get the privilege of making the distinction between the ones who are easy to love and the ones who are pain in the neck to love. Now, I know no one has this experience with me. But you can love the pain in the next, and they don't get any better. And you can even work hard to make it work. And maybe it'll get a little better. Maybe God will you know, break hearts and spirits. Maybe that happens. I hope it does. I hope some, if we have reconciliation and relationships in life, it's a wonderful explanation of the gospel, changing hearts and putting pride aside. Um, but it's hard sometimes to love people that are unlovely. Sometimes it goes a long way. Um, there was a woman in the library when I used to, was doing my postgraduate work and she was over the periodical room. Nobody even knows what those are anymore, do they? We don't use those things. But there was a periodical room that had abstracts and journals, not like books on shelves and magazines. They were like technical journals and stuff. So you had to go to this periodical room in a desk and it had its own separate card system. And the woman behind there, was let's just say she wasn't a happy person. And you felt like you were going to the principal when you asked, you know, her. You, you had to have her do it for you. That was the whole point. You couldn't go back there and rifle around in the cages. They had to get the books for you. And so you'd write them out on a card, and maybe she didn't like the way you wrote them down or whatever. You know, it was always a joy. And um, I made it my mission to get this woman to smile. Just to get her to smile. Four years. And I go, oh, I got to go down to the periodical room and pull some abstracts and photocopy them. I go in there. And she was just an unhappy camper. And I'll never forget, my like fourth year, it wasn't like a bona fide smile, but I'm going to take it. So I was like, how are you doing today? What's going on? How are you getting down here? Anybody giving you trouble? Everybody treating you nice? And she just gave me this mm, look, you know. It's like the DMV. Sorry, I hope you don't work at the DMV. Uh, <laughs> actually, the DMV in Middle Tennessee is a blast. These people are nice. They're, you live in other states, it's a little different. Um, I remember going to the DMV and she called me hun. I didn't have a form. No worry, hun. I'll find it for you. What? You're going to help me? <laughs> Novel idea. Tennessee's a good place. Perhaps the most important verse for many in 1 John, the one that's gold to some, is chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Read verse 13 aloud with me. 
these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Pretty strong. John's gospel in John 20, 31, he said these things have been written so that you would believe. The purpose statement we call it. John's very clear. I'm writing these things and here he turns the heat up a little bit so that you might know. If you believed, or for Christians, since you've believed, I want you to know that you 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 know you have eternal life. What a horrible way to live as a Christian and not be sure of your salvation. Because he gave it to you so that you can know. Oh, that's easy believism. And then you're going to live like you know, crazy. You're going to sin. You're going to, you're going to exploit your sins. So that's, that's the risk. Sure, that's a risk. But there's this thing called God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people that hopefully keep us from living like crazy. And when we sin, not if, we're called back by God's Spirit and God's Word. And you know, as I tell you, get your nose in the book every morning, every day, every night, whatever works for you. I, I need reminders all the time. I'm not going to be a good Christian if I don't continue to spend time in the Word. I'm not going to grow, certainly. You can't live on your laurels. The danger of you and me over 50, 60, who've known Christ a long time, is you're coasting on your theological laurels. Young men and women in the faith, exciting. I remember in college, I couldn't wait to get up at 5 in the morning and study my Bible for an hour. That's when I learned to drink coffee. I hated coffee, never liked it. I bought a $20 coffee maker little house in Nacogdoches had no heat, no central heat. And I had a down sleeping bag and I'd wrap myself up, down sleeping bag, make a cup of coffee. And it was for effect, not for enjoyment. And I'd read my Bible for an hour and the time would disappear. Sometimes I'd go, oh, it's been an hour and a half, i got to go. I had 6 a.m. classes in those days, back when men were men and so forth. But anyway, <laughs> you imagine having a 6 a.m. class today in college? You, you can't grow if you don't spend time in His Word. You won't grow. You'll become apathetic. And you might even start to doubt things. You might start to believe the culture. Because they talk at us nonstop. You might start to believe some well-intentioned friends who don't know what they know. You've got to have a guide. There is actually a ruler in the United States Bureau of Measurements, I believe is the title of the, of the bureaucracy, that has the ruler. And if you're going to make a tape or a ruler or a scale, you need to use the ruler to make your rulers or your tapes or your whatever, or it's going to be off. If we all had a 25-foot tape, we're building a house, and it's all a 16th or a 32nd or a half inch off, what's going to happen to that house? Not gonna work. You gotta have a scale. You gotta have the, the line to which you're measured. I find it interesting that God's Spirit moved John at the end of this little letter to write those verses. So that you might know. Don't pass over the obvious. Why? Because we don't know. Because we doubt. Because we wonder. Or maybe we take it for granted and do live licentiously, all of which are unfortunate. So he's saying here, understand God's love. You have the Son, you have the life. He gives it to you. 
I'm writing all this so that you will know. It's a good ending of a book. What's the price of such knowledge? His life. Dying for you and me. And that's what gives us this knowledge. To know that we know that we know. So in my Christian life, when I came to Christ, transform of change, big change. Drugs, licentiousness, crazy man as a teenager. I come to Christ, the first thing I understand, I was forgiven of sin. Blew my mind. Some of us raised Catholic. I was raised Catholic. Catholics are really good on guilt. And boy, did I feel guilty. And for somebody to tell me all my sins were forgiven, it was like, Yahtzee. All my sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. How can that possibly be? Because that's what Christ does. And oh, by the way, he gives you a gift called eternal life. So now I got a posture for success, so to speak. Not maybe the best word. I got, I got the posture to grow, to go in the right direction. And then all of life becomes this, this transactional relationship with Christ, God's word, God's spirit, God's people, that I'm growing in faith. And things that I did without thinking twice about as a sinful young man, now I have pause. When I felt guilt and shame, it was for a good reason. Don't go there, Michael. Don't do that, Michael. Get away from that. Back up. Stop and ask for help. It's a real simple prayer. Lord, I want to do this. I'm tempted to do it. Do you think he doesn't know that you're tempted to sin? God, I'm going to do it again if I don't have some self-control and I sure would like your spirit to give me a little encouragement. Give me a dope slap. Let me know what I need to stay away from this. Finally, I think the book is talking about fellowship, so I have three questions for you that I think come fairly from this little letter to ask you and me, what is this thing called fellowship and how do we know if we're in it? And again, back to Constable's earlier statement, which I so appreciated, fellowship with God is the essence of eternal life. So what does fellowship look like? From this little letter, number one, am I confessing my sins? That's 1 John 1, 9. A person who never confesses sin, who doesn't know they sin, who doesn't acknowledge their sin, that's not a hard one to figure out. They're not walking with God. If you can live in sin without any, any caution or hesitation or resistance, there's a problem. Secondly, am I walking in obedience to God's Word? When I read it and I know what it says, do I believe it? Do I obey it? This is hard. Maybe it's hard because I'm in sin. Maybe it's hard because I don't want it. I'm apathetic. i got to love everybody. Boy, okay, i got to love everybody. Help me love that unlovable person. Help me love that person behind the counter that always is unhappy. Help me love that nurse that I work with that drives me nuts. Help me work with my engineer, my team leader, that really drives me nuts. I can't say that it always works, but sometimes when you just stop disliking that person and get to know them a little bit, it can help. It may not make it all right, but it can help. And you can see them through loving eyes. Am I loving my brethren? Pretty simple stuff, isn't it? Pretty practical. Are you confessing your sins? Are you walking in obedience to the Word of God? And are you loving the brethren? Those are indications of a Christian who's growing in faith. They're walking in fellowship. They understand the relationship they have been given in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And He asks us to confess our sins, to walk in obedience to His Word, and to love the brethren. 
Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.